0: hey everyone and welcome to unison christian church the podcast we exist to change our community with the life-changing truth of jesus elevate a culture of love and holistic growth and serve as a family built on hope our desire is that today's message helps you discover fresh new ways of connecting with god now here is today's message um we're starting a new sermon series it's called the others and um And we'll, over the next four weeks, be talking about the biblical foundations for how we navigate life surrounded by others. Uh, And so today, the sermon is about culturally other. But over the next few weeks, it will be theologically other, religiously other, and other lifestyles. we exist in an increasingly polarizing world. Every single moment, it's, we are spreading further and further apart. And there, we've, we come up with another other <laughs> every other day, right? Like there's, there's someone else that lives in opposition to the way that I think, and then I caricaturize and minimize who they are and what they do and what they believe. And that's not something new. Like, I know we like to blame social media for that, and so certainly social media has contributed to it. But we've been doing that since Genesis, so (laughs) that's not brand new, right? That's not how that works. Cain and Abel had that issue, (laughs) and it carried out all the way through But a part of what we as believers have to do is we have to be the ones who begin to look at what the work that Christ did, see what the Spirit has been doing to see where is their legitimate other and where is it that I just have arrogance that needs to be surrendered to the Lord. And so that's kind of what we're talking about over the next four weeks. Today, the, the title of the sermon is His Offspring. Uh, it will be in Acts chapter 17. Um, before we jump in, I'll pray, and then I will, we'll start. Father, thank you for being so good. You show yourself in a myriad of different ways. God, we thank you. And Lord, as we jump into this sermon series, and as we jump into this sermon today, God, may you be glorified in our fellowship, but also may we find you as we seek you in your word. Ultimately, God, we're not looking for answers, we're looking for you. We're looking for your heart, your values, your desire for humanity so that we can represent you well in the earth and that creation would know who you are by how we bear witness to you. And so, Lord, may our hearts be in alignment with your spirit today, and may our minds be transformed in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's talk culture real quick. What you just saw was a dance. It was a, it was a celebration dance of a Native American culture. That was, that's of the western part of the United States. Uh, I was in the room when that dance was performed, it was in 2012 at uh, the Wesleyan Church General Conference. So every four years, we're part of the Wesleyan denomination, those who may not know that. And a part of the Wesleyan denomination, they get together every four years, and it's a time of worship, but also the biggest business meeting that a church will ever have. <laughs> There's voting and delegates and people putting up motions and blah, blah, blah. And this was a moment where they were, we were highlighting Native American ministries, um, there had been a transition of leadership from one leader who was um, white to a Native American person leading Native American ministries for all of the Wesleyan church, which I'm totally down for. I'm down for us being indigenous leadership, is what that would be called. And not just because it's a person who was indigenous to America, but indigenous as in baked and marinated in the culture in which they're serving. Uh, Unison, we get to benefit from that to some degree. Why do I say that? Because I get the privilege of leading Unison and this is my neighborhood. Like I, this, When we first moved to Michigan this was my hood. Right? I walked up and down Burton Street singing. <laughs> I, I had friends here. I went to high school up the street. I like, that's a, a part of how you get to serve the people that you're in the neighborhood is by also having leadership that understands the people that you're serving. So it was a great moment of celebrating that transition of leadership, but it was also a great moment of making everybody in that room uncomfortable. <laughs> like everybody, like, like the first part of the song was like, okay, I'm mildly uncomfortable. When they just started like, Screaming, like, it was like, I'm like, okay, whoa, what's happening now? I don't know what's happening inside of me, and I'm a little bit weirded out by what's going on. I'm just gonna close my eyes and be super holy right now. <laughs> yes, God, use them, Lord, use them, use them, Lord. Are they done? Use them, Jesus, right? <laughs> I'm just being honest, okay? I'm being honest. I wasn't all the way here yet then, okay? <laughs> Just use them, Lord. Somebody's being blessed, Jesus. (laughs) And um, since uh, I have learned a lot about Native American culture, um, not nearly as much as I hope to know, but I've learned a lot more. It was a great book um, called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. Really good book. I would encourage you to read it. Um, But... um, I, one of the things that I was most convicted by was not by what was happening. Was by how I was responding to what was happening as though it was inappropriate in church. That's the thing that convicted me like this shouldn't be happening in church. But the people who led the Wesleyan, lead the Wesleyan church said it was good. So why am I struggling? <laughs> and i convinced now that that last part, you know, the I can only imagine was just to kind of help us. <laughs> it was just like, look, I know we just made y'all really uncomfortable. Here's something y'all know. <laughs> right? I would have preferred if they did the Tamil man version, but whatever. No. <laughs> Oftentimes, when we start talking about culture and we talk about the church and the Bible. We operate out of that discomfort, not really out of truth, not really out of the Spirit of God. We operate out of that discomfort, and we immediately say, because I'm uncomfortable, well, then that means the Holy Spirit is uncomfortable, and that is not actually how that works. Sometimes there's discomfort in us because the Holy Spirit needs to work something out. And I'm 100% convinced that while I was there trying to figure out how to be holy in that moment, that the Holy Spirit began to do something inside of me to root out bias against Native Americans. That was what was happening inside of me. It's like, Chase, why is that there? Why is that there? Why can't you just look? If they were praise dancing to Fred Hammond, you would be looking. If they were praise, if they were shouting, you would have joined them. I'm just being honest. I would have been up real quick with a tambourine if they had started some shout music. Hey, I (laughs) would have got a quick lap around that auditorium so quick. Why can't I? join with my brothers and sisters who are also worshiping god because somebody told me it wasn't okay and that's inside of me that has to be sanctified out culture we when we start thinking about culture we often think about those kind of things like dances and food and language and music and all of those things are better actually known as cultural expressions Culture is actually determined by a number of different um, values and, and ways in which we operate with each other and the world that make decisions for us. Some of you know that even though I get to pastor here, I'm also a racial equity coach. And so I've coached a number of different organizations and churches in town, and we get to talk about culture from this big level pretty often. And some of those things I'll talk about at the end of our sermon today, but... We're not going to go through all of them, but I want to make sure that we can bring in some firm definitions of what culture is. So when we start talking about culture from, the, from a biblical standpoint, it's a little bit different than the ways in which we think about culture. Because of the social construct of race that isn't biological but has been around for the last 400, 500 years, Right, I won't give you the full history level uh, lesson on that, but because of the social construct that is race, we tend to lump skin pigmentation and geography together, and that's what determines a person's probable culture. It's okay for us to know that that's what that is. It's even though race is not biologically true, it's socially true, so it's true. It's a sad reality, but none of us have existed in a world where there wasn't race. So when we start, when we say culture, our minds immediately go to black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American. We start thinking about races, about those things that you would check on the census data box. Those are the things you start thinking about. And then we go another level and say, well, we can say Northern and Southern culture, right? Because there's a difference between black people in the North and black people in the South, right? There's a difference between white folks in California and white folks in New York. But ultimately, when we think about culture in the United States of America, there's always color and there's always geography. And that's a broad stroke statement. That isn't, of course, true for every single individual. However, when it's not true, we also make an excuse for why it's not true. Oh, they were adopted. That's why why they're a little bit different. Tell me I'm lying. Y'all know y'all do that. When you see that one black kid that's not acting like a black kid, you try to figure out why. (laughs) It just is. It is what it is. Oh, they're adopted. They're from Ethiopia. We do it. If we don't say it out loud, we do it in our hearts. It's okay. See that that, that one white person that's acting a little bit different? Oh, they were raised in the hood. (laughs) Right? We do it. Don't act like you don't. (laughs) You do it. (laughs) And you can't figure out why that one kid that is descended of Mexicans can't speak Spanish. You do it. Like, oh, they're third generation Hispanic. That's why they don't speak Spanish. And whisper to each other while they're not there. (laughs) It's because of our our understanding of culture has to do with race. And I'm not going to deny that today. It is what it is. But the biblical understanding of culture is not that. And so the only reason I spent that amount of time processing that is so that we know that where we're going is not how they navigate that. The Bible doesn't have race as a social construct. People groups, yes. Cultures, yes. Different geography, yes. Different languages, yes. Different religions, absolutely. But race, didn't exist when the Bible was being written. So when Peter and Paul and James and Luke and all these people start writing, they're not talking about race when they talk about culture. Most often, when we speak of culture from a biblical standpoint, we're talking about religion and geography. Religion and, and geography. So in the Old Testament in the law where it says that they were not to intermarry with people who weren't Jews, a way in which the Bible has been poorly applied is to to say that whites can't marry blacks because the Bible says that you're not supposed to intermarry. Pause. The way that the Bible speaks about culture is religion and geography. The way we think about culture is race and geography. It's different. The reason why Moses told them not to intermarry had to do more so with the fact that they were going to keep cheating on God (laughs) if they allowed all these other religious influences to keep tempting and drawing them away from serving Yahweh. That's it. That's the rationale behind it. It had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that they looked different because most likely they didn't look different. Most likely, Jews looked exactly like Moabites. (laughs) Most likely, Jews look exactly like Ishmaelites. Most likely, these people, because they shared so much geography, so much economy, so much, and there was not nearly as much travel as we experience now, for the most part, you lived around folks who looked like you. Though you may have had some different cultures that would have been based upon religion for the most part. That's the foundation of what we're talking about when we talk about culturally other. We have to know that the Bible speaks differently about culture than we do. So as we jump into Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. And there is, uh, for some of us, this is a familiar portion of Scripture, but I'll give you a little bit of a backdrop before we get to uh, verse 24. Paul and his homies are in Athens. This is his second missionary trip. And um, as a missionary, Paul is going all over right? He's not just, I, I know sometimes when we think about missionaries, we think like, oh yeah, they went to, you know, Uganda, they went to Ecuador, and they stayed there for about eight years, and maybe they had their whole missionary um, ministry there, and that's A way of thinking about missionary work. It's beautiful. It's legitimate. It's God-glorifying. I love it. But Paul's particular version of missionary work was also had this tinge of apostleship and in that he was starting churches. So he would go to Ephesus, start a church, hang out for a couple years, make sure they're good, and then bounce. (laughs) Then he would go over to Corinth. Then he would go over to Athens. Then he would go over to wherever else he went, make sure they had some indigenous leadership, and then leave. Well, Paul was with a group of other missionaries, and they were in Athens. And immediately Paul recognizes that the city of Athens is an incredibly religious city. They have gods for everything. God's for the sun, God for food, God for procreation, God's for grass. They got it all. And even to the point where they have a statue dedicated to an unknown God. And that's actually where we jump in right now. Paul is beginning to talk to them about who this unknown God may be. And he says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. And humans' hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. I want you to underline or star that, even if it's just in your mind for a second. Underline and star that. We're actually going to go back to it in a second. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Some of your Bibles say we live, we move, and have our being. That's how I learned it when I was a kid, right? (laughs) For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I'm going to pause there for a second. I'm going to go back to 26. Because this is a portion of scripture that we don't often pause at, but it arrested me. Because one of the things that I have learned over the last few years, especially as I have allowed myself to be convicted by what's inside of me when I am uncomfortable in other cultural expressions and why there's something inside of me that says that's not godly, the more that I have allowed myself to sit in that discomfort, not try to make sense of it, but to sit in that discomfort for a second. More and more, the Lord keeps saying he's in it. Not in every single thing that happens. And that's the thing that, that's a little bit challenging for us. But if God created all the nations through one person and has decided when they rise and fall, because when we say nations, that means ethnicities. Ethnicities means people groups. He has created all the people groups of the world and has decided when they would rise and fall and has purposed that in some way they would find him reaching for them. And he's not far from them. So there's a piece of that puzzle in which God has also ordained and finds him. And we can also see God In the cultures of the earth, right? If human beings are created in God's image, oftentimes we want to say that that means physically we're created in his image. But that's actually not how that works. God doesn't have a body the way we do. So it's not about my face. It's not about my anatomy that's created in God's image. What is created in God's image? It's the way in which we interact with creation, the way in which we interact with God, the way in which we interact with one another. And in many, many ways, all of that is wrapped up in culture. And so the different cultures that exist on the earth, not all of them say, oh, that's God right there. But we have to be willing To see that part of the image of God in every single culture that exists on this planet because he is moving and alive in every single culture on the planet. Now, does that mean everything from every culture is God? No. And that's the challenge that we have. We don't know how to find that middle space between throwing the baby out with the bathwater and drinking the bathwater. There's a space in the middle that says God can be found everywhere because God is everywhere. (laughs) God can be found if he's not far from any nation. That means in every single culture, a part of who God is, is represented. And it's our job to seek him there, not his job to prove himself there. And not their job to prove how God is showing himself. And it's my job to sit in the discomfort for a little bit and allow the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, Chase, that's not because I'm not here. It's just because you don't like it. (laughs) It's just because it's not what you want to happen right now. And it's not how you found me. Some, some, some of that, it, it hits you, it hits you, right? Because you, because that's what happens with all of us. The way in which we find God is how we, anybody, is the way that people are supposed to find God, right? That's why, like, I, I still struggle when people ain't, like, charismatic. Like, where are y'all not actually worshiping Jesus? Like, what is happening right now? No one's crying. No one's on the floor. That nobody's running around. Y'all don't even like them, let alone love them. No. <laughs> but that's just because that's the way I found God. Some of you walk into a charismatic church and you're like, they're running around here, they're crazy. <laughs> they don't respect God enough to stand still for a half an hour. <laughs> Listen, how they screaming and hollering, how they can't even hear the word of God? They' so hot They hollering so tough. I'm just saying, that's what we do. That's what we do. Well, that's just church culture, right? It's even more challenging for us to go and hang out in a room full of folks from Nepal when they're worshiping God in the ways in which are culturally normative for them. And you sit there and try to skim through Scripture so you can justify, when did it say that we can sing in Nepalese, Nepalese, right? (laughs) when none of them songs in the Bible were written in English, (laughs) right? (laughs) Just because you read it in English doesn't mean it was written that way. That's why it doesn't rhyme, like because it wasn't written in English. (laughs) That discomfort we're supposed to sit in and allow the Holy Spirit to humble us In that moment, as opposed to trying to resolve it on our own by saying we're right or they're wrong or even going to the other extreme and saying, oh, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. It's okay for God to reveal himself in several different ways. If he got three persons, he can definitely reveal himself in all of the cultures of the planet. And if he's the one who has decided when they rise and fall and that no culture is too far from who he is well, then it's my responsibility to seek him. And when I seek him, I'll find him. So Paul was living that out, not just by drawing attention to this unknown God, because that's a part of it, right? It's a part of the puzzle. He's trying to connect with the people like hey y'all got obsessed with an unknown god. I know about this god that y'all don't know. Let me tell you about him. Right? That's like classic evangelism right there like you know what? Hey, I see you smoking there. Did you know that God revealed himself as smoke one time? Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's classic. Like get in there real quick. <laughs> But that's not actually the only way in which Paul was connecting with the people. Paul actually was educated in their culture. Acts chapter 7, verse 28. That idea of for in him we live and move and have our being. I've heard that portion of scripture repeated over and over and over again. But Paul actually borrowed that from a Cretan philosopher called Epimedides not a that wasn't jewish literature that was not even like it wasn't it wasn't anything that was connected to the worship of Yahweh he borrowed that concept because it was applicable to what he was be, to to this unknown god he connected with what they understood this was from a poem that Epimenides wrote Wrote, But then also the last portion of that, we are his offspring, was from a Sicilian f- philosopher called Aratus. And he was a Stoic philosopher. And by Stoics, like Stoicism. So I know that we think of the word Stoic and we think just kind of subdued emotionally. And that is actually where we get the word from. It's a philosophy, a way of thinking called Stoicism. And that idea of Stoicism, is, is it hyper focuses on human reason and diminishes the changes that happen in the emotional responses that happen along with that. It gets rid of the idea of fate, get rid of the idea of providence, and it's human logic wins in every single situation. That's actually the school of thought, the philosophy called stoicism. And it's the idea that just because things happen doesn't mean I get emotionally engaged and involved. Like Human reason is what it is. So I need to reason my way through this challenge. That's not a religion, it's a philosophy. But it sounds very familiar. <laughs> sounds a lot like American Christianity, doesn't it? This idea. That, I mean, we have completely separated ourselves as a overarching broad stroke, especially when we think about like evangelicalism. We've separated ourselves from things that are emotional. We've separated ourselves from things that we can't explain. Like, there are whole theologies, whole seminaries that say that when Moses uh, split the Red Sea, that it didn't really happen. Like, it was just a metaphor for what God was doing. Like, I'm, like whole seminaries. All There are pastors being taught that the things in the Bible that were miraculous didn't actually happen. <laughs> because it doesn't align with our reason. It doesn't make sense logically. So because it doesn't make sense logically, well, then it has to be another reason for it because the Bible isn't lying. So what is the Bible doing? Oh, it's a metaphor. It's a story, like the, like the prodigal son. It didn't really happen, <laughs> but it helps us understand something about God more. When he, would, his will, he will split a Red Sea for us. Well, wait a minute. Pause for a second. If it's just a metaphor, God never did any miracle, well, then what are we even teaching each other? <laughs> Right if the idea is that I would it points to God's character that I would give you this metaphor about him splitting a red sea but he never does any miracles well what part of his character am I revealing the imaginary part No, the reason why we tell the stories of God's goodness over and over again, the reason why we tell the stories of miraculous works all over and over again is because this is a part of God's character. He reaches into our reality, messes up our logic, and moves on our behalf. But Stoicism says, no, that's not a thing. Over and and more and more. That's becoming the culture of the American church. That's not what we're really t- pr- talk, preaching about, but I just needed to make sure I threw that in there because I had a little soapbox moment, and so now we're moving on. Acts chapter 17, <laughs> verse 29. Back to this idea of we us being his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speaking about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Paul's mission, Paul's um, calling in that space was to go... Begin a church and leave. That's what Paul was doing. And the way in which he did that, I'm sure every single place, was to understand the people in which he was talking to, find a way to bridge their reality and the reality that is God, connect them, marry them, and then leave. Paul used his knowledge of their culture to build relationships and plant a church and then bounce. I think one of the things that we've often done when we look at this work is we say, well, Paul planted churches everywhere. He used his knowledge of their culture to go and start churches and be evangelistic, and that's what everyone else should do too. Nope. Paul used his understanding of their culture to do what Paul was called to do. That's how that works. Paul used his understanding to do what he was called to do. And we should follow suit. When we start to apply scripture, it's not do what Paul did the way Paul did it. No, do what God's called you to do the way in which the Holy Spirit has proven over time to be successful. Get to know people. Value people. Rehumanize people. Why am I saying rehumanize? Because increasingly we're in a world that wants to separate, make a caricature, demoralize, demean, dehumanize those around us who think, look, smell, act, and eat differently than I do. And it's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit to not just save everybody around me, but also to rehumanize everybody because as a human, they have a reason to be saved. As a caricature, I actually am not even motivated to save them. That's a part of why our evangelism isn't working the way. It, because we, we refuse to humanize the people around us. We refuse to allow them to bear in part the image of God and we say, I'm the only one who's bearing the image of God so you're not even worthy of my time today. But if we are intentional to say, you share with me the image of God even though you don't yet know Jesus the way I do, Let me introduce you to them. We don't start bearing the image of God when we love Jesus. People were bearing the image of God thousands of years before Jesus was even conceived. We bear the image of God because he wants humans to bear the image of God. It's not my job to determine whether or not that's what it should be. It's my job to get in alignment with it. So, my Buddhist neighbor bears in part the image of God. My Native American neighbor bears in part the image of God. All these other cultures of the world that make me uncomfortable because my great grandfather told me that they weren't, that they were all pagans, bear in part the image of God. And the moment that I align myself with that truth, then something sparks on me, inside of me, that makes me actually want to see them love Jesus. But I am now, I'm in no way actually motivated to talk to animals and pets about Jesus because they're not humans. And I don't actually think that God is interested in saving their souls the same way he's interested in saving human souls. And so I don't pray with my pets the way I would pray with a human. Have you ever prayed with somebody who doesn't profess Jesus? Perhaps it's because inside of you, you don't see them as a human yet. What, Chase? They have the same eyes and nose and ears. I'm not talking physically anymore. Talking spiritually, mentally, some of us believe that until a person finds Jesus, they're not yet even, they're not alive. And that's not the way in which Scripture talks about life and death. That's just not it. Yes, we are made new in Christ. Yes, we have found life in Christ. But every single moment of our life is a moment of discipleship, even before I cross the line of faith. Every single moment, God is calling all of his creation to him, and I just get to be a part of the voice, the echoing voice. Some will choose and some won't. It ain't my job to figure that out. It's just my job to echo. So when we start talking about culture, I have to allow myself to sit in that discomfort. That's the biblical side of things. Right, and that's talking about our neighbor in terms of folks who perhaps share a different culture. Church culture is a unique bag. (laughs) Because church culture is also colored and shaded by our other cultures, too. And there's some ways in which us being a multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation are a little more challenging than if we were all the same people. (laughs) And so we're going to talk about three of them, because a part of this has to do with not just how we love our neighbor, but also how we love each other. And there are, um, so there's some really good books, one by Erin Myers. Uh, She wrote The Culture Map. Erin Myers, it's spelled the the feminine way, E-R-I-N Myers. And then there's another book that's called Leading with Cultural Intelligence by David Livermore. And both of them point to these cultural norms that ultimately they help uh, us see what's happening below the surface that are making decisions for people even before they cognitively start making decisions. Because that's really, that's really the truth about culture. It's not the difference between greens and you know, uh, green bean casserole, right? Those are just expressions. <laughs> The real difference in culture is how in which we, uh, this subconscious way in which we interact with the world. And so there are somewhere between 8 and 10, depending on which books you read. But we're only going to talk about three. If you want to talk about the other ones, I like talking about this stuff. So I'm totally down for talking about it with you. We will nerd together. So, (laughs) um, But the first one, I want to show you this picture. It's called Power Distance. Power distance, and power distance is a cultural marker, and the uh, and the best way for us to describe what that is is people who have authority. In a high power distance culture, they are to some degree untouchable, and that's not like arrogant, as in they think they're better than everyone. It's a part of the cultural norm to. To in some ways set those who are in authority separate from those who are a part of the just a you know regular group in a low power distance culture, everybody's flat. Authority doesn't mean you're set apart, it just everybody's together, it's one big group. The way that that plays out, even here at Unison, is I've got folks who are literally twice my age that call me pastor. They refuse to just call me Chase. They call me Pastor Chase, and they want to make sure that if we have cake, I got the biggest piece. Okay? I'm serious. Like, it's a thing, right? High power distance culture. And I have three-year-olds here that just call me Chase because their parents don't teach them to put a title in front of it. <laughs> like, so I've, people, and like, and so like, I have this little three-year-old, Chase, like, look at this, like, yeah. And as a, now, personally, me, I probably fall more on the high power distance side because of the way I was raised. <laughs> I don't even let my kids talk to grown-ups without putting a Mr. or a Miss or a something in front of it. Like, that ain't a thing. And if you're an adult cousin, you got cousin in front of your name. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You don't just call your adult cousins by their first name. What do you think this is? <laughs> right? A part of that is, and yes, those are cultural things. Yep, they're cultural things. But the underneath what that is, is honor and respect. It has to do with honor and respect. So for, an, uh, for a high power distance culture, honor tends to be far more deeply felt than a low power distance culture. Not to say that it's not felt at all. It's just felt more deeply because they, their way in which they interact with each other, it, their, social, um, their social capital, so to speak, is based upon the way in which they honor one another. And so a part of the way we know that this person is someone worthy of our attention is because he or she is separated from the rest. And so when that person starts to speak, everyone needs to look at them. That's not true for low-power distance cultures. That plays out a lot as it relates to our kids. Plays out a lot. Because we have... Low power distance parents teaching low power distance culture to children and high power distance parents teaching their children that every time someone's taller than you, you automatically need to respect what they're saying. Neither one of them are wrong. And I think that's the point that we need to make sure that we land on. Neither one of them are wrong, but we as a multi-ethnic family have to have language for talking about what that turns into when you have kids that don't listen to adults because the only person they were taught to listen to was their parents. <laughs> and we have, par- we have adults who are like, these kids don't listen to nobody. <laughs> and all the different ways in which that plays out. We have to have language for that here. That's language is high power distance, low power distance. And the way in which we navigate that as a family is we have to discipline ourselves to not judge right or wrong. The discipline is to not judge right or wrong, but to understand that family dynamic. Seek to understand. No, as a foundation, where I am on the spectrum isn't godly. it's just is. (laughs) As opposed to immediately going to portions of Scripture that say, spare the rod, spoil the child, and then walking away. Right? Don't tell me, I don't do it. I know you do it. No. (laughs) Nope. There's also other portions in the same book that say to not provoke your children to anger. (laughs) And there is this space in the middle where I acknowledge that there is a uniqueness to the way in which God has revealed himself in every Single culture, and if I'm disciplined to sit there for a little bit, I will see a part of God in the way in which that parent is different than me. And if I go the next step, I will also begin implementing that in my own parenting, and my children will be blessed all the more because of it, because they will have seen more of the image of God because I allowed his image to be reflected and echoed in me. But if we only wanna say it's right or wrong, or I gotta figure out how to make myself better, and we don't sit there for a second, we miss the opportunity to reflect God in 2D and 3D, right? Another one, direct versus indirect communication. Listen, (laughs) this has been the area where your bro your boy has had to grow, saints. <laughs> so a real quick definition. Um, the, the picture, it's worth a thousand words, right? Like it, it kind of gives some indication as what this means. But for a direct communicator, it's not just that direct communicators speak or write linearly from A to B. They think and process A to B right? It's super like, the sun is out today means the sun is out today. For an indirect communicator, listen, I'm trying not to be offensive because it's different than the way I process the world. So, Christine, look at me, babe. Look at me. Like, look, she's she going to check me. Because so <laughs> Christine is much more of an indirect communicator. It's not that indirect communicators just... Uh, think in roundabout ways of processing. It's the way in which indirect communicators process all of the information, all the contextual things get brought into this moment. So when an indirect communicator says the sun's out today, well, an indirect communicator is also pointing to the fact that yesterday afternoon, you all talked about going for a walk together if the weather was good. And so, an indirect communicator saying the sun's out today means, "How about that walk?" Right? That's an in, and 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 listen for an in, for a direct communicator that feels manipulative. Let's just be real; it feels manipulative. Why don't you just say, "Let's go for a walk"? Dang it! <laughs> but for an indirect communicator. Saying things plainly and directly is at most innocent, immature, but at most devious, rude. Right? It's like, you ain't have to say it that harsh. I just said let's go for a walk. What you trying to say about me? <laughs> right? What you trying to say? You trying to say I need to go for a walk? <laughs> right? Right? Because all they're taking in more than just what you said. Neither one of them are wrong. Neither one of them are godly. Those of us who are indirect communicators should not just go around and saying, "Well, let your yeas be yeas and your nays be nays." Then, how about that? Right? <laughs> like, like some of us will immediately try to go New King James Version on people. Go straight to James. Like, well, James was guess what? A direct communicator, but Solomon, not so much. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, all the prophets. None of them were direct communicators. That's why y'all don't read those books. Because <laughs> we don't get them. <laughs> like, will you just say what it is, Daniel? Stop giving me all these weird images. <laughs> Neither one of them is wrong. They're both Show a part of who God is. There are times where God needs to say things very clearly to you. And if you are so, so determined to receive them indirectly, well, you're going to have your feelings hurt when God tells you to turn left right now. But if we're also so impatient that we refuse to sit and seek what the Lord might be saying because he didn't say it directly, Well, then we miss the opportunity to experience the intimacy that comes along with God. Because most of the time when you read the Gospels, when Jesus is asked a question, he speaks indirectly. Because it's not about, he's answering more than what you asked. I've got more for you because I know this is what you asked, but let me tell you this story over here. Because it's going to get to what you asked and what's beneath it. Neither one of them are wrong. I have to be willing to sit there for a second. Last one to talk about. Wait, wait, before we go there. Listen, the way that plays out here in our family is we got to all across the board. Broad stroke. This is a broad stroke move here. Most minority cultures have learned and and understand indirect communication and it's because of the ways in which we have to navigate code switching, right? I am a little bit of an anomaly. I actually don't do well with that (laughs) and it's just because I'm a pretty linear guy. But minority cultures for the most part have to navigate code switching in a way that makes it so that indirect communication tends to be the most prevalent and, um, and easily understood, especially when you have to be in mixed company. But also too, that's also the, the same rule applies to many women as well. Many women tend to be indirect communicators, not all, but many because of the code switching that has to go along with being in a world that's mostly dominated by men. And so there are some of those symptoms show up that way. And so for all of, you know, us direct communicators, the best way that we should operate in those spaces is to ask questions. It's to say, okay, let me make sure. This is what I heard you saying, sis. This is what I heard you saying, bro. And then they can tell me, "Mm, no, that's not actually it at all. (laughs) Right? Um, and, and, And for indirect communicators, knowing that, If you're speaking to our direct communicator, they don't catch all of what you're trying to say. They caught the one thing you said, so before you leave that meeting, you both need to make sure that everything that was intended to be caught was caught. Because if you leave a ministry planning meeting, and y'all have not made sure Trust me when I tell you both of y'all about to go in different directions in everything that you do, I know from experience. (laughs) Look, we're learning, Saints. We're learning. All right. So last one to really kind of process for our family is neutral versus effective. And effective as in A, effective, not E-effective. So E-effective is um, I wanted to cut the grass, so I took took out the lawnmower and the blade was sharp enough to do so. It effectively cut the grass, right? Affective has to do with expression, emotion. Neutral versus affective emotion. Um, Affective cultures tend to show emotion, whether joy, sadness, anger, more vibrantly. Um, That's why you can be a part of a you know be a part of a gathering of folks that you know uh, were affective and it's it's on and popping. Everything is like hey, all right, like everybody's jumping and you feel like you just should jump 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 along with them. because of what's happening emotionally. And actually, most times in those gatherings, the emotional undertone is the most important connective tissue. So like in gospel music, the lyrics repeat over and over again because it's not actually a lyrical worship moment. It's an emotional worship moment. And what you'll notice if you close your eyes and pay attention is that every single time we sing it, it gets more and more intense emotionally. The words are the same, but it's more and more intense, and we are all in one accord emotionally. The lyrics just serve as a way for us to sing the same thing at the same time. Whereas in other cultures, you know, like predominantly European cultures, that's not the same. It's actually like emotional expression is kind of taboo. Like, if you get too emotional, like, mm, you're silly or immature. Like, eh, it just, eh. I, I, yeah, s- settle down. <laughs> Simmer down now. Right? <laughs> Simmer down. Right? That's that idea of it's, it is socially appropriate, especially in a mixed company, to be more neutral than to be effective. And if you begin to express too much, then... You run the risk of people seeing you as immature or ultimately not fully engaged. The challenge with that is, like, that has to do how we were taught how to be, right? That's the thing, That's the thing about all three of these. It's not just this preference. When you were three years old, if you are in a neutral culture, they were telling you, shh, you're being too loud. <laughs> you're doing too much. You don't need to cry about that. You don't need to, no. Settle down. Not about behavior, but about emotion. There's a difference. Behavior, yes, we do have to tell your children to settle down sometimes, but sometimes it's about emotion, like to the point where, like, you're too happy. (laughs) You don't have to, like, it's okay to express joy, but not that much here. Some of you are like, yep, I remember my parents telling me that. (laughs) I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not wrong, it's not right, it just is. And then you've got folks who are part of, you know, a part of Hispanic and black cultures where like, you can't go to a black family ba- uh, gathering and it not be loud. <laughs> Hispanic family gathering like, look, the barbecue is going and everybody's laughing loudly all in their different pockets, right? Or there's one pocket over here where someone is clearly going through and bitterly weeping. Go to a black funeral, I'll tell you. Listen, it's not neutral at all. <laughs> this whole whole comedy skits about how emotional it is. Neither one of them is wrong, but the way that that plays out here is American culture is more neutral. So people who grew up in more effective or effectual cultures feel like they have to diminish themselves in worship here. This is the truth. Because we don't know that we have permission to do that. Are you going to see me as immature because I'm in the corner crying? Because that's how I was taught how to, what worship is, right? Are you going to see me as less godly or less holy because I'm running around the room? That's a part of the way in which I was taught to celebrate the goodness of God. But I don't know, because we don't have language for that. Well, we have language for it now, fam. Some of us are more neutral in our expression, and it's okay. Some of us are more effective in our our worship and in our expression, and that's okay. The challenge that we both, all of us have to have is sitting in the discomfort. If I were to put some words to what I would imagine Unison being at some point is I would imagine us being moderate charismatics, (laughs) right? Moderate charismatics. And that's, but here's the reason why. Not because I feel like we have to have a name for it. I feel like because ultimately what that does is it puts everybody in the space of hospitable discomfort. I am free enough in the way that I engage in worship where I would actually make my neighbor have to surrender a little bit. And, but not so much that they don't feel like they actually are in the same experience that I'm in. And that's either way, because that person just standing there or perhaps just rocking back and forth needs to be free to just rock back and forth as an expression of worship and it not feel like me who wants to literally jump from the balcony. (laughs) That person also has to feel like they're in the same worship experience too. And the way that we do that is mutually submitting and surrendering to one another in that space that says, I want to create room for you to also feel like you're home here. And so I'm not going to come check on you every time you cry because I know that's actually a part of just how some folks worship. It doesn't mean you're sad. It doesn't mean that you need to be checked on. I'm also not going to look at you weird if your hands go up real quick, but I'm also not going to look at you weird if you're just sitting there or you're journaling or in the moment where they tell everybody to stand up, you actually stay seated. I'm not going to look at you weird. I'm going to leave room to let you be a human being, for you to operate within the way in which God has revealed himself to you freely. And we're going to challenge each other to see God in all of it. Culturally other, the way in which we truly navigate the culturally other is the foundation that God can be found in all the ways in which human beings exist. Not that God is found in everything that human beings do, but God can be found in all the ways that human beings exist, all the cultures. And if I discipline myself to seek him, I will find him and I will reflect him more beautifully So some things to reflect on. (laughs) This is a little bit longer. Uh, The various cultures of the world, in one way or another, point to creator God. It is our job to seek him through them. I already said that. We landed on that enough times. And the last one is just homework, really. Intentionally learn about the cultures around you and rehumanize your neighbor. Intentionally. Spend some time. I'm not saying, like, go to college to do cultural anthropology. Ask questions, (laughs) right? That's one of the beauties of being in a multi-ethnic church is that we can create space to ask dumb questions. And trust that it's from a sincere space of seeking not for me to just know stuff, but for me to know you, I want to know you. And the best way we can do that is not by a barrage of all of the questions I ever wanted to know about Asian people, <laughs> but tell me who you are. I want to know how to love and honor you well. And when there's something that feels different than what is normative for me, that's that moment It's like, hey, is that a part of the way in which your family operates? And they say, no, I just don't like, I just, I'm just a direct communicator. Because the reality is all of them, they'd be all over the place too. <laughs> <laughs> and so ask questions, get to know, and rehumanize one another. When we do that, we also do what Jesus, uh, we, we, we live out that second part of the great commandment. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't mean love your neighbor the way you like being loved because truly you want people to love you based upon all the beauty that you are. So love them that way too, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you because you show yourself strong in so many ways. You show yourself mighty and beautiful. You have chosen to reveal yourself in the the cultures and the people groups of this world. You've chosen to do that. Help us in moments where my heart only wants to see you through my lens. Convict me, Holy Spirit, so that I adequately humanize your Ambassadors, your image. I adequately shine a light of what you have said over and over again, uh, that we bear in part your image. Help me, help us in moments, even here within our own church family, where the culture is different and it feels like it's in opposition. Help us to be disciplined and to slow down. And to intentionally seek you before we speak or act. Because when we seek you, you've promised that we'll find you. And when we find you, God, we will be able to more clearly demonstrate your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy and your discipline and your growth. We trust you with all these things. Lord, there's things we don't know to ask you about how we live live out. The Bible well as it relates to culturally others. Teach us, Holy Spirit. We surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and believe others could benefit from hearing about us, please remember to share and subscribe to Unison Christian Church wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also catch us live at unisongr.com or on Facebook. See you next week.